Welcome to Courageous Wellness. My name is Erica Stein. And I'm Allie French. And this is a podcast about individual journeys within wellness and how to navigate it all. After Allie experienced a cancer diagnosis in her 20s. And Erica went through a sustained 50-pound weight loss and self-love journey. We created a platform to interview real people from all walks of life that have combined all types of practices. From physical wellness to emotional and spiritual, we hear courageous stories and focus on why it's important to share them. We are both certified integrative nutrition health coaches and together with our community are learning to live our most purposeful lives by sharing one courageous story at a time. It takes courage to share these journeys and by talking about them, we aim to destigmatize the process. We want you to be your own health advocate, feel educated and informed on the latest in health and wellness and empower you to feel your absolute best. And because we want to bring forth a wide variety of stories, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect our own, but we hope the diverse and varied stories will empower you to make the best choices for your own life. So join us as we and our community share our courageous wellness. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Courageous Wellness. We have a wonderful episode coming up for you today um, with a lovely woman out of the UK, Eleanor Cleghorn, but we're going to get to her formal intro in just a few minutes. Uh, before we do, Erica, I just wanted to do a quick update. How is your week going? What What's up with you? <laughs> What is up with me? Um, oh my gosh, this week is my six, is it six years, six year wedding anniversary, well, which congratulations. I can't believe it's been six years. Um, yeah, it's wild. It's so exciting. I'm so excited to celebrate love. Yes. I'm such a Libra. I am so excited to celebrate a little love this this year and this week always, but last year was like, you know, the thick of the pandemic. And so we, we celebrated at home, but this year I'm excited to be able to celebrate out in the world again. Um, yeah. So it's, it's something to look forward to this week and yeah, I'm, I'm excited. What about you? How's your week going? Yeah, great. I um, also have a lot of birthdays in my life this week. My mom is spending some time with me, which I'm really happy to have her in California and um, celebrating her birthday. So taking a little trip to Santa Barbara, which is really nice. And um, yeah, just enjoying, enjoying that. And um, that's it really. I mean, it's just, you know, just spending some time with family. So, um, which I feel like we've been doing in a catch up kind of way this year, this okay. summer, um, which has been really nice because it's been a long time for a lot of us. So I'm um, just kind of soaking that in, you know? Yeah. I think this summer, it's like the summer of extra appreciation for all the things that we can do and just lots of gratitude unlike yes. ever before, you know? So yeah, it's a fun time and we hope everyone is enjoying their summer. I love the month of July. I feel like July has such a good energy and vibe and it's just such a nice, fun month. And yes, I'm very excited about this episode. I learned so much from Eleanor and I just could not stop reading her book. So yeah. I can't wait to get into it. Should we get into it? Cause yes. this is a great episode. Let's, Let's get into it. it. 
Today on the podcast, we have a wonderful conversation with Eleanor Cleghorn, author of Unwell Woman, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World. This book discusses the history of misdiagnosis and myth in women's health. Eleanor's story began 10 years ago when she was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease after a long period of being told her symptoms were anything from psychosomatic to a possible pregnancy. As Eleanor learned to live with her unpredictable disease, she turned to history for answers and found an enraging legacy of suffering, mystification, and misdiagnosis. In her book, Eleanor traces the almost unbelievable history of how medicine has failed women by treating their bodies as alien and other, often to perilous effect. Eleanor has a background in feminist culture and history, and her critical writing has been published in several academic journals, including Screen. After receiving her PhD in humanities and cultural studies in 2012, Eleanor worked for three years as a postdoctoral researcher at the Ruskin School of Art at the University of Oxford on an interdisciplinary arts and medical humanities project. She has given talks and lectures at the British Film Institute, where she has been a regular Regular contributor to the education program, and she has appeared on the BBC Radio 4 discussion show, The Forum. She now works as a freelance writer and researcher and lives in Sussex. We have the most incredible conversation on women's health, advocacy, and Eleanor's own personal journey. Enjoy the episode. This episode is sponsored by Milk and Honey. Milk and Honey is a line of non-toxic, effective, and safe bath, body, and skincare products made in small batches in Austin, Texas. They source ingredients as hyper-clean as possible, which means both choosing organic and making thoughtful, informed choices on safe ingredients. Milk and Honey is a female-founded and funded brand that offers a wide variety of non-toxic bath, body, and skincare products that will make you feel nourished inside and out. Their online boutique also offers products from other top brands, including Osea Malibu, Virtue, Moon Juice, Kula Sun Care, and more. Some of our favorite products include Milk and Honey's Baking Soda Free Aluminum Free Deodorant and Lavender Tea Tree, which I have been exclusively using for years. I also love Milk and Honey's Gel Cleanser and Osea's Body Oil and Vegas Nerve Oil, which activates the body's relaxation response and helps regulate stress. If you want to try Milk and Honey, you can receive 15% off your order by visiting milkandhoney.com and using the code CWPODCAST, one word, at checkout. You can also find the direct link in our show notes. This episode is brought to you by our health coaching subscription service on Patreon. The Courageous Wellness Collective has expanded on Patreon to bring our listeners and clients an all-access, accessible platform to educate, inform, and create nutrition and lifestyle habits to meet your personal goals. For $8.99 a month, patrons will receive weekly video content on topics ranging from blood sugar stabilization, gut health, hormone balance, energy, sleep, skin health, how to shop the grocery store, pantry staples, and much more. Included, you'll also receive access to monthly virtual webinars, recipes, and special guest content too. With this subscription, you are guaranteed at least four pieces of fresh health coaching content each month. 
To learn more and become a patron, visit www.patreon.com slash courageous wellness, or check out our show notes. We look forward to welcoming you to our coaching community. Thank you so much for joining us, Eleanor. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, Erica and I are really um, excited to have this conversation with you today and talk about your new book. But to get started, you know, we always ask all of our guests a little bit about their personal journey um, in the health and wellness space. And I would love you um, to share a little bit about your journey and then ultimately maybe how that's led you to the work that you do now. Of course. So 10 years ago in 2010, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease called systemic lupus erythematosus. And that is the most common form of lupus. And it affects 90% more women. So 90% of sufferers around the globe are women, usually between kind of 18 and about 40. And I was diagnosed in 2010 after having a really complex pregnancy in which my second son so my youngest son had a heart condition called congenital heart block that's quite rare and what happens is that something is going on in the AV node which is like a signal box that controls how the um, two chambers of the heart beat and it was being damaged so his heart was beating really slowly and this was discovered at like a routine sonogram and it's really rare and one of the only reasons for this happening is that the mother carries something in her immune system that is actually crossing the placenta and attacking the fetal heart. So I had a bunch of like a battery of blood work to see if I did have any immune abnormality. And it turned out that I did carry a cell that was related to this particular heart condition in my baby. And so the rest of the pregnancy was in sort of very surveilled and very kind of high alert. And thankfully he was born healthy and well with a properly functioning heart. But what this immune abnormality meant for my own health sort of slipped between the cracks. So all the focus was on my baby and none of the doctors or consultants that I was seeing talked about how this might impact me. So when my son was about nine weeks old, I started getting really unwell feeling as if I had an awful flu and I was really had a lot of pain in my back and in my chest, which I just kind of wrote off as being the sort of usual or kind of accepted sort of aches and pains and tiredness of having a new baby. So for a few weeks, I kind of sat on this, although I knew that something was really wrong. And eventually I went to my doctors and I was having a lot of trouble breathing and I was having palpitations and he, I was rushed to A&E, so rushed to the ER, and I had a heart condition of my own. I have fluid building up in the pericardium. And again, this cause of this was mysterious. So my doctors and consultants that I was seeing on the cardiac ward were looking at all these different reasons why this might be happening. So they considered a postpartum infection, which was ruled out. They thought maybe it was pneumonia and that was ruled out too. They thought it might be this condition called postpartum cardiomyopathy, which is a postpartum, like the stress of pregnancy brings on a form of heart disease. And that wasn't it either. And eventually a rheumatologist who sort of came to the ward, he came to see me and, you know, asked a bunch of questions and then ordered a battery of new bloods. And I had, um, 
heart scans and he sort of put the puzzle pieces together and decided that whatever had happened to my baby and what was now happening to me were caused by the same immune abnormality and he diagnosed me with lupus so it was a fairly quick diagnosis considering that lupus is a disease that can take between four and six years to be conclusively diagnosed but the diagnosis also allowed me to kind of make sense of what had happened to me in my medical history so for about seven or eight years before I was diagnosed I experienced what I now understand are characteristic symptoms of lupus so this was fatigue joint pain migraines so there's lots of kind of edema that's swelling in my joints and then associated with that mental health issues because I was in so much pain and every time I went to the doctor I was told mm, you're a young woman it's your hormones or you might be still growing or you know at the age of 22 23 and one even suggested that I might be pregnant and just didn't realize so after a while, I just started to think, okay, I'm making this up. And I internalized a lot of sort of messaging around being, you know, fussy or attention seeking or imagining it, like you know, sort of inventing this pain. So the diagnosis made me see, okay, you know, my body was trying to speak this language for years. It was trying to communicate and no, none of the doctors saw those symptoms as worthy or valuable enough to refer me for further tests. And it took a kind of real, real, really a near ca catastrophe, like kind of brush with death to really figure out what was going on. So that was my journey. It was this sort of emergency period of time where thankfully I got a conclusive diagnosis and started to get you know, decent care to manage my disease. But also this sort of these wilderness years of not knowing what was happening with my health, trying kind of everything I could, you know, in where Western mainstream medicine was letting me down, like trying different things, trying different alternative routes. But it just felt like I didn't understand what was happening in my body and then I could. So that was my sort of, you know, long, that was the long, the long and short journey to figuring out what was really happening with me. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. You know, as you tell the story, I can't help but think how, how common on some level, um, these types of stories are for, for many women. And, um, I think for, I guess people in general, but I, I know this is something that has, which you can get into in a little while has plagued women in the history of our medical system for as long as it's existed. Um, and I, you know, I even can relate a little bit that I had, uh, something, it, it was not an autoimmune, but I found something strange, like, uh, blood vessels that weren't sort of healing. It looked like a bruise on my back. And I went to, um, a doctor who was not my typical doctor. He, cause I was there for something else. And he, um, told me to ignore it. And I, I, I didn't listen and I kept on it, I kept on it. And ultimately it was a cancer diagnosis. But had I listened to that, you know, medical advice in that moment, it could have gotten a lot worse prior to getting, um, and it still took over a year for diagnosis. So it, it's just interesting. I, I hear these stories. I hear a story like yours and I, I deeply relate to this idea of like, you know, all, 
a dismissal sometimes of, and then it's like, you question yourself. Well, if, am I, you know? And so this, Eric and I talk a lot about trying to cultivate the skill to become our own advocates in the medical space and the health space. And, um, but it's not always easy, you know, it's, um, it can be a difficult journey. And I'm curious if you don't mind touching a little bit on, you know, the mental health aspect, when you, when you experience professionals or you experience like many different practitioners saying it could be this, it's not this, it could be this, it's not this. And I know there's a certain amount of like guesswork that goes into it. Um, and you know, deductive reasoning, but without being able to get a diagnosis for all that, those years, and then thinking something's wrong with you, how did, how did you, when you finally got that diagnosis, how did that process for you from an emotional point of view or a mental health point of view? Oh, thank you for asking. That's a, that's a really great question. Actually, the first time that anyone has asked me this question, in, oh. you know, relationship to the, to the book or kind of the work that came afterwards, it was definitely, I think initially, because I was so unwell, it took months to really get back on my feet. So I was diagnosed in November, because we have like fireworks night over here. So it was fireworks night. And the first time I was able to take like a walk, you know, in a, in the city, like with my baby strapped to me to kind of go get coffee or whatever was kind of the February. So it was quite a few months before I was strong enough to really sort of just have like a walk you know just do something really ordinary and I had a toddler as well so it was a really difficult few months of sort of struggling so I don't think I I think I was still in that state of emergency afterwards or just trying to kind of get through each day and regain a little bit of strength but coming to terms with the diagnosis itself it was it was definitely validating and it did help me to understand that I wasn't I did know, like I could trust how I was feeling. And also that understanding that like my body has, has its own intelligence and like it was trying to communicate something really important. And that, you know, understanding that I was completely kind of comprehending like these messages and trying, just trying to get someone to translate them for me was, it was extremely validating from the point of view of my understanding that I, you know, did know myself, you know, and I think that it was a lot of unlearning had to happen um, or a lot of kind of deprogramming from being told for all those years that I shouldn't be paying that much attention to how I was feeling. And I'm so sorry for what you went through, because to be told to ignore something about your own body when you know you you know and you you know to to have that sort of trust severed between what you know about yourself and your body by someone who's a presumed authority and is a, in a kind of you know position of care is is traumatizing i think it's really traumatizing and you know the the fact that we have to then fight to be accepted as you know reliable interlocutors or narrators of our feelings is is so much part of the battle and it's a battle like none of us should have to go into when we're just trying to you know find the best care or kind of you know have achieve health and well-being um but I so I think it took a long time to 
come to terms with that in in the sense that of regaining a strength and a kind of you know trust in myself and yeah and it took it also took my meeting different kinds of doctors and different kinds of consultants who are experts in this disease because the GPs and you know hospital kind of first port of call doctors I was seeing they just don't have enough information to make any kind of conclusive or or even sort of um to assume anything in the room in that very short space of time when you go to see them and you explain how you're feeling so so when I then met experts clinicians who specialized in this area it was like kind of going through a door into a completely different space where these doctors were not just validating how I felt and understanding exactly what I was going through because they knew the disease but they were also interested in it because they were studying it so it became something validating and I suddenly felt valuable as well as validated and so yeah I think it took a long time yeah it's so interesting because I think you know you're correct and it's amazing right how this um conversation transcends country (laughs) location right um because doctors don't nurses don't get this training right on so many different things nutrition women's health um yeah and there's so many reasons for that, which, you know, I'd love for us to explore, but I'm, I'm so curious as well, because lupus also does predominantly affect women. Is that correct? Yes. So, so I'm curious is, is that when you started to realize that this was a greater issue with our medical system? Um, what was that connection between realizing that women's health isn't as prioritized as maybe men's health (laughs) for I'm sure many different reasons, but I'd love to kind of unpack that as well, especially since what you were diagnosed with is something that does predominantly affect women and then was ignored for, by the medical community. This is also a great question. Um, I, so I'd never really heard of lupus before. I kind of had a sense of what autoimmunity was. Like I sort of understood it as a concept. My, oldest friend had has had autoimmune issues since we were teenagers so I knew that this concept existed that a person's immune system could kind of turn on their own organs and healthy cells and tissues but I didn't I wasn't cognizant of what lupus was and I was yeah I was so I was being careful by these brilliant clinicians and they could you know, organize a treatment regimen for me and they could admit me to a clinic and see me every few months and make sure that I was well and manage me really closely. But they couldn't answer some really fundamental questions about this disease that I really needed to understand, which included why does it affect so many more women than men? You know, why does it seem to be something that is possibly related to female sex hormones, but yet you know, the knowledge around that is still so murky because the doctors would say things to me like, oh, it's probably because after you were, after you had your baby, you had a huge estrogen dip and that can trigger it because estrogen can be protective in certain autoimmune conditions, but they couldn't, it was almost like it was rumors or little bits of kind of heard 
knowledge it wasn't like that nobody could actually explain the sort of biomedic from a biomedical point of view exactly why this was happening and i thought well there are so many unanswered questions nobody could either tell me why i had it you know maybe it's genetic maybe it's environmental maybe it's was triggered in a from a childhood virus you know it's so the the causality is still really mysterious and it struck me that why is it that a disease that affects you know, overwhelmingly more women than men, and also affects with more severe disease outcomes, black, Asian, ethnically diverse women even more. So there's even a greater disparity there. Why are there so many un unanswered questions around it? And that is sort of what made me think, okay, there's something happening here in that, you know, we don't, there's this whole group of autoimmune diseases that also affect women predominantly that similarly have these other narratives of kind of mystery and unknowingness and sometimes they're contested by mainstream physicians and I thought well it can't be a coincidence that we're in you know the 21st century and we know still know so little about these diseases there must be a relationship between that unknowingness and the fact that they predominantly affect women and women as you say just have not been prioritized as clinical subjects outside of reproductive medicine. So it's like this whole sort of murky area of, of women's health that just is in the kind of shrugging space. Like, oh, we don't know. You know, we don't know what causes it. We don't really know how to treat it. We don't really know how to diagnose it or how to, you know, allow, you know, even allow patients to become kind of advocates for themselves when it comes to these diseases. So, and I think a huge amount of that is lack of knowledge, because I really like to think that the majority of health professionals are not in no way are intentionally out to harm women. I really believe that. But I think the combination of implicit and unconscious bias against women, especially when they express symptoms like pain and fatigue, coupled with this kind of woeful lack of clinical and biomedical knowledge creates this it essentially kind of creates this crisis of sort of mystery around women's health and you know this is to me that feels like it does feel like a crisis because as we know you know chronic and incurable non-communicable diseases are on the rise Absolutely. in women across the globe you know so it presents a major health crisis yeah. Absolutely. It blows my mind too, because I was just talking to Ali a little bit about this before we started recording, but I think I was reading recently that up until the 1980s, I think, um, which is not that long ago, um, I was born in the late 80s, um, women were still being diagnosed as hysterical, right? Like, oh, this is just hysteria. And gosh, we know everything that happened, at least in the US in the 70s, um, just with women's bodies and even right, I read an article that you were quoted in about the vaccine, even right, we're all so concerned about the vaccine causing blood clots when the birth control pill for generations has caused many, 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 many more blood clots and other adverse reactions than the vaccine has proven to cause, right? So it's so interesting. It It's just, it's such it's infuriating, it's concerning, and it's it's just so interesting to me that 
women's health is put on the back burner. And like you said, just we're three white women, right? Like talk about black, Asian, all these, it's just such a big issue. And so I don't even know what my question is, but since you're the expert here, it's like, what can we do, right? Like, what can we do? Because I was even reading um, earlier today, um, a post um, from the nutrition tea, who is a nutrition, she's healthy at every size. She's a wonderful account for anyone to follow. But she posted a story and she posts a lot of these stories about even fat phobia, right? Um, Especially in regards to women. And this woman was having terrible stomach pain, terrible stomach issues, and was just constantly told, you need to lose weight, eat more fiber, clean up your gut microbiome, all things that I believe in. But those were not her issues, right? And it turns out she finally kept switching doctors because, um, of Instagram and people telling her to advocate for her health. And she finally found a doctor that did imaging and she had a giant cyst, right? Like, and her, the doctor she ended up finding couldn't believe that no one else had done imaging on her, right? They were just like, you need to lose weight. You need to lose weight. So I know that's (laughs) a gentle story, but I think this is all related to, um, why is this happening and what can we do about it to make sure that future generations don't have to suffer the way women historically have suffered and continue to suffer today. I think that, you know, I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book is because, you know, we have over the last few years, especially been, these issues have really come, I think, to the fore in terms of, you know, advocacy, communities, um, chronic illness, kind of awareness, groups through social media online you know it's become this really important discursive time and I think as the wellness industry has grown it's also created these kind of spaces for different sorts of discussions in this space of health and wellness and you know it's incredible to me when I was diagnosed I didn't emerge as an unwell woman into this space where there were lots of discussions and visibility and story sharing happening and I've seen it happen over these last 10 years especially I think since Me Too and Time's Up with you know a focus on disbelief and the the damage and the damage that disbelieving women does across all sectors at all sectors of society and a real reckoning with what the fallout is of disbelieving women so I feel like now we're entering this time where this issue of you know the health disparities that women face the health dis- and then the intersections within that so what happens you know the the treatment of fat women it it's extraordinary still that you know our you know cultural fat phobia still obscures and limits the medical care that women have and that you know i mean for example if someone was told to you know eat more fiber if they had you know a chronic bowel disease like crohn's i mean that could really make them extremely sick but yet that's always the obstacle you have to go through right yeah and uh, something you just shared kind of illuminated this idea that like how the lack of believing women in across all different areas of society for so long has been detrimental for Mm -hmm. for so many reasons but also the harm that can do in then women being taught to not believe ourselves 
and not trust ourselves, which sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier within the context of like diagnosis or listening to our own bodies and the, in, the sort of like innate intelligence that is in that. Um, but I also think like, it's not even not believing ourselves, but then we, we've created sort of these like ideas where we don't necessarily trust ourselves, what we're feeling, what we're experiencing. And so if anything, hopefully more conversations like this can help, you know, empower people, empower women to say, Hey, if I fundamentally feel like something is off, like to entrust, to be able to trust that sense of, um, intelligence from within themselves too, and not, uh, ignore it because they've been taught to ignore it. I just think that, you know, we have so many ingrained messages that are sort of absorbed into the health care system around the way that women are interpreted. So the way that women's pain especially is interpreted when they express it. So as well as, you know, the, the, the sense that a woman says she's in pain and it's distrusted or disbelieved, is has been shown in studies to be like a cultural issue you know there is a cultural bias against believing valuing and taking seriously women's expressions of pain or maybe more feminized expressions of pain and this is you know a social and cultural bias that kind of transcends medicine but it's just because in in the medical encounter you know gender it's one of those areas where we our gender is really sort of magnified, I think, or, our, you know, the way that women, not all women, but the way that women tend to explain how they're feeling is more social. It's more to do with their lives, more to do with their, you know, how I might say, you know, I've been in so much pain. I can't get my children dressed for school. I can't walk them to school, you know, and th- these sorts of details, these more emotional, more social, more personal details actually delegitimize how our pain is seen. Whereas a more masculine expression of pain that may focus entirely on the sensation, the location is perceived as being more credible. So we're fighting against not just a medical system that historically has excluded women from the production of knowledge. So we just know less about our conditions and the complexities of the female body, but we're also fighting against like this magnification of stereotypes that happens Mm -hmm. in the doctor's office. So I think that knowing, I mean, this is set up to make us distrust because, you know, the presumed authorities over our bodies in that kind of medical setting are the doctors, are the clinicians, are the physicians. We are supposed to not know. So we say it hurts and they tell us why. So if we say it hurts, they tell us it doesn't. It's really difficult then to kind of regain your confidence and regain your power and say, no, this is, I am speaking from, you know, a place of truth and understanding. So it's like, it's two kinds of things that I think we, the mountain feels big and it's like two sides of the mountain we have to climb and one is in terms of our own advocacy and in both individually and in community and I think so much of that comes from understanding that when you're unwell that you are not alone and that you know others this isn't to diminish any single person's experience but you will find there will be people out there that you will encounter who know exactly what you've what it's felt like 
to go through a really difficult and lengthy diagnostic process to be gaslit to be disbelieved you know there will be people there so i think creating community and individual advocacy through collectively and individually is so so important in terms of changing the culture and in terms of raising awareness around what sort of how we just want to be treated right like what's how that encounter can be shaped how we can feel that we're being respected and listened to as human beings first and not as a kind of gender stereotype first so that i think is happening you know from the ground up through communities online through story sharing through some you know serious bravery in terms of people speaking out about their experiences but what we also need at the same time is systemic change right so we need more research into these complex health conditions we need more money to fund you know implementable strategies into how all people who are unwell can be treated humanely and compassionately and all that needs to come from the top so it's like we have to kind of meet in the middle to create kind of both systemic and cultural change. We are so excited to offer our listeners a new discount to one of the best probiotic supplements on the market, Seed. Whether you are a Patreon member in our nutrition community or a regular listener of the podcast, you know that Ali and I are both very serious when it comes to the importance of gut health and building a thriving microbiome. I personally have been using seed for months and have noticed a big difference in my digestion and bloating. I am now devoted to taking seed every morning before food and I'm really excited to share their daily symbiotic with our audience. The formulation of the daily symbiotic combines a probiotic and prebiotic, is vegan and gluten-free, and includes 24 clinically studied naturally occurring strains not found in yogurt or fermented foods and beverages, and lives up to the highest standards for human and planetary health. Yes. In addition to being a really reliable probiotic and prebiotic supplement, Seed is committed to creating science-based education for all those that partner with them through accountable advertising at Seed University. This is where we are all committed to not spreading misinformation about health on the internet, which is pretty important. Also, I personally love their commitment to sustainability with a refill system and all recyclable or biodegradable packaging materials. Erica and I only advertise products that we use and feel are of benefit to us and by extension could be of value to our community. If you would like to order Seed Daily Symbiotics to incorporate into your own gut health routine, go to seed.com and use Courageous15 at checkout for 15% off or click on the link in our show notes or the link tree on Instagram. We have an exciting new discount for our listeners with Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic offers superfood coffee and elixirs to upgrade your daily routine. The powerful antioxidants, antiviral effects, and immune-boosting properties of mushrooms transform your cup of joe from an energy-boosting treat to a health-enhancing choice. Along with mushroom coffee, Four Sigmatic also offers mushroom elixirs, mushroom hot cocos, and other shroom-filled products. 
Erica uses the lion's mane in her morning superfood coffee. And even though I hate mushrooms, I absolutely love the products, especially the matcha latte powder, which contains myataki mushrooms and adaptogens. For 10% off Four Sigmatic products, visit foursigmatic.com and use the code COURAGEOUS at checkout. And there's also a direct link in our show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Thank you. I think this is a good moment to transition into talking a little bit more specifically about the book um, as well. And so for anyone who wants to pick up a copy and can you share us like, I know it's, it's quite a, well, I'll, I'll tell the, I'll tell our listeners the title first. It's called Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World. And um, for anyone who's interested in picking up a copy and learning more, can you give us a little bit of a brief overview on what you explore in the book? So in Unwell Women, I journey through the history of medicine. So the history of our Western mainstream evidence-based medicine. I journey through it from its very beginnings in ancient Greece until more or less the present to really trace the history of the misdiagnosis, misunderstanding, and mystification that so many women experience as they journey with ill health and try to navigate healthcare systems. So it's a narrative history that tells you know, the story across the centuries of how mythologies and misunderstandings about who women are and how they should live and how they should feel have sort of become entangled with official medical knowledge about our illnesses and diseases to create this the legacy that we have now and that we're tackling now of you know discrimination and doubt and health disparity so it's full it's a book that is full of stories of you know medical misogyny and medical sexism but also i hope full of stories of some truly incredible unwell women unwell people who really try to change the culture and change and sort of unroot these, you know, very kind of ingrained ideas about women's, you know, bodies, their emotions and their lives to, you know, help create the more equitable health culture that, you know, we're, we're still striving for today, but, you know, they made you know, serious change. So it's both a sort of infuriating book and I hope a hopeful book as well that really explains how we got into this situation in terms of gender disparities in healthcare. Yeah, it sounds like, I love books that really can give us that historical background and understanding of why, because I feel like there's so much empowerment in understanding in order to make those changes that we're discussing, right? Um, yeah, because throughout this whole conversation as well, I'm like, well, of course, like men have historically been doctors. And even because I'm so passionate about nutrition and fat phobia and all of this stuff, even learning about BMI and how that was created by men and for men and different things like that. So very, very just incredible. And the work you're doing is so wonderful and just, gosh, it's crazy, right? Was this something you always... Was it, I mean, obviously through your own diagnosis and understanding this was developed, but was this always something you saw for yourself as like in your cards, in your path, or did it really just completely transform from 
pregnancy and diagnosis of lupus? I always wanted to write a book and I always wanted to write a feminist history book. And my focus of my work before I got unwell was on feminist visual culture. So I was researching um, women artists, women filmmakers from the kind of early years of cinema. So I was really set on writing, you know, developing a career around this. And I did quite a lot of work in that space. But as I, after I was diagnosed, when I started kind of mining medicine's history to try and find some explanations or to sort of build up this picture of why so little was known about not just my disease, but other complex chronic health conditions that affect women. It was almost like my interest in the medical field sort of got, you know, bigger and bigger. And then over, you know, when sort of, I guess over the last sort of three years or so, about three years ago, I started thinking about what kind of book this might be. And I've been doing creative writing and I've been doing some other sorts of work around illness, some collaborative work, some creative work. And I just felt like it was the right moment to propose a book that really sort of went, okay, we're in a situation now where health discrimination, medical sexism is becoming something that we're, you know, that is capturing the public imagination that we're more cognizant of, that so many women intuitively understand is, you know, at play when on their journeys to good health. But where did it come from? Why? Why are these things still sticking around? So that was the sort of the germ of the idea. And I just thought, okay, I, I kind of considered concentrating just on chronic illnesses. So looking at autoimmune, but also looking at conditions like endometriosis that have a really long thorny history of medical neglect and mythologizing and prejudice. But then I thought, okay, why not just tell the whole story or as much of the story as I can in a narrative history? And I, it was really important to me that this book was accessible, that it was well-researched, but that also anyone could read it, that you don't have to have a background in medical history or feminist history. I hope that you know anyone who is just interested in this kind of field has been personally affected by it or is just curious can open it up and like there's no sort of presumed knowledge in it so that was really important to me because I see so many people who go through this and it's not always you know we're not we don't have we shouldn't have to be conversant all the time in you know why these sort of systemic disparities happen and yeah. so it was important I made something that could help but also so that unwell women could situate themselves in a really fascinating yes infuriating but also fascinating history and it's not just the history of doctors and clinical knowledge and you know laboratories it's also the history of people and their lives and how women have always contributed to this knowledge you know as patients like the suffering of some of the people that i encountered in case studies say from the 19th century you know, what they went through contributed to the knowledge that saved my life. So I kind of feel like there's this beautiful sort of hidden history that I wanted to tell that celebrated that, you know, that celebrated how each of us who is unwell is valuable in that sense. You it's know, so, we're all part of a history. It's so beautiful. And I just keep thinking like you really were able to take, right, like your passion and then your pain and transform it into such purpose. And I think for any of our listeners who are listening, who are struggling, you know, like grief is grief and pain is pain. And it 
doesn't make it better just because we've turned it into our purpose, but I do, or it doesn't always make it better just because we've turned it into our purpose. But I do think it's very hopeful for anyone listening who is suffering and who has dreams. It's sometimes what we go through really can be the impetus towards, you know, our greatest desires and hopes and dreams. And it's just really beautiful. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. Yes. And I'm so glad we are having this conversation, especially for our listeners um, who are a majority uh, young, young women under the ages between 18 and 35. Um, and I think, um, you know, I wish this had been a little bit more on my radar, even though, you know, it's like you said, we all, all don't have to be experts in certain fields, but to just have some accessible information that can be empowering, um, because we all have bodies and we all, you know, we're all going to experience something. So to be able to feel, confident in that. And, um, we've done episodes on endometriosis, both from like the struggle of even female physicians getting, that was so interesting getting even certain, um, procedures approved financially. They, they would lose money if they were doing like, it's wild to hear about systemic stuff on that end when they're just trying to like be present and treat their patients as best they know possible. And then we've had people living. Uh, we had a woman share her journey with endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain and how she also um, has cultivated a life uh, very much dealing with that, but openly sharing it and um, the community she's been able to create from that. So just it's just really interesting, but I'm glad – we continue to have these conversations and a conversation like this to put um, on young yeah. women's awareness and um, grow that awareness. And something actually that's interesting that we're talking about it from a, a medical perspective and research, but since this is sort of a all-encompassing quote-unquote wellness podcast and we explore all different aspects of what that might mean, um, one thing I heard recently or have learned recently is that also in the fitness industry, and I guess this goes along with like a lot of aspects of diet culture too, which Erica and I talk quite a bit about, but most of the research that certain fitness trends are based on is not for women and not done on women. It's done on male bodies um, of a certain age. And so- it doesn't take into account hormonal cycles or the infradian rhythm that all women have, which is different than, than the, the rhythm of a male body. Or if you have male biology, let's put it that way, I, regardless of how you uh, gender identify. So it's, um, yeah, it's just interesting. It's just a good thing to have on our awareness, I think. And, um, and yeah. we thank you for bringing it to our awareness yeah. and this well, conversation. I just wanted to say too that if I'd have had something like this when I was, you know, 21, 22 and going through a demoralizing and difficult journey to figure out what was wrong, I'm feeling incredibly isolated in that, you know, so I'm so, although, you know, I'm so grateful that these conversations like yours exist for younger women who are, you know, who might then feel, you know, more, empower but also just not alone you know it can be incredibly isolating to be in that sort of space of sort of murkiness with trusting and distrusting or not knowing how to believe your body and not 
understanding that your body is your own, which is something I think that so can be so difficult, you know, when we're young women to know that this is ours and we know it because there's so much messaging around us, not just from medicine, but from diet culture, as you say, from fitness industry, that we shouldn't, you know, that we always have to kind of improve, we have to intervene, we're never enough, you know, there's always a sort of striving. And when you realize that things like diet culture and the fitness industry are not necessarily accommodating of any sort of gender variance outside a kind of white male biology and anatomy, there's this kind of sense of sort of othering, like we're othered and made different and made a subgroup. And, you know, now I just see so much positive change in accommodating the diversity and difference in, you know, the sphere of health and wellness. And so if I'd have had something like your podcast when I was younger, you know, it would have been incredible. So thank you for doing the work that you do. Uh, thank you. Well, as we wrap up, we always ask all of our guests three questions. So I will start with the first one. And that is as, you know, a busy author and mom um, and, you know, someone who's also dealt with chronic illness, how do you take care of yourself? What does your daily self-care routine look like? So I think number one, sleep. And this is something that I have only realized as I've got a bit older that sleep and rest is a non-negotiable and that rest, I mean, not just sleep, but resting is actually really productive. You know, I'd always found that this idea when I was a bit younger, that rest was somehow this kind of checking out or this laziness, but realizing that rest is productive, it's recuperative, but it's also like, it's, it's a non-negotiable. So rest is crucially important. So as well as getting good sleep, just like taking rest in the day and realizing that nothing is so important that rest has to be like, you know, thrown away or abandoned. So that's been really important. Also, yoga is super important to me and has been for a long time. And I feel like it's been a constant companion of mine. You know, before I got sick, I used to love yoga and it was kind of that was one of the practices that helped me understand and get to know my body and trust my body much better because you know through being unwell through being pregnant through recovering there's always a form of yoga or just movement that can be done you know on this brilliant spectrum of just a little bit of stretching to you know a full like a hot class or a flow class so that's really important to me too um, and just understanding, I think, and accepting, you know, in my mind that being chronically ill is, it's a meaningful part of who I am. It's not something to hide. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something that I should always try and deny, but that it is, it's who I am. And it's as much part of my identity as being a writer or being a mom and kind of honoring that, I think. Thank you so much for that. And the next question we always ask is, what does being courageous mean to you? Interesting question. Being courageous. This is such a good question. <laughs> Sorry, let me think. Okay. Um, be, okay, being courageous for me be, means embracing the possibility of failing. 
and understanding that failure is hugely important to growth and hugely important to learning and is a really crucial source of self-knowledge. And, you know, bringing up two boys, I have two sons and they're 11 and 13 and they're at school and, you know, they're pushed to achieve and pushed to do super well. And I see that there's not so much discussion and narrative around how important it is to try and to experiment and to enjoy what you're doing, you know, for the sake of loving learning or loving trying something, because it feels like there's always this sort of achievement fetishism almost. So I think I've really tried in my career and in the way that I, you know, am with my boys to just say, look, you know, it's, if you fail, that's, there's so much to be learned. I've learned so much from the failures that I've had in my career or the full starts or the moments of disappointment. I've taken so much from that and it's only kind of being sort of 941, but looking back and going, okay, those were possibly more important to me than the achievements because that was where the kind of real growth happened. So I think being courageous to me means being prepared to fail and embracing failure when it happens. Thank you. That's a great answer. I love, I love hearing people's answers for that question. And then the final one is in addition to your own book, um, do you have a book recommendation? Uh, and it can be really on anything, just something that's meant something to you, or it means a lot to you over the course of your life. Okay. Another great question. Um, what a good question this is. Let me think a little bit. Sorry. No, it's fine. This one is always like only one. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Right. Okay. I think that the, okay. I think that the book that has meant the most to me throughout my life is Sylvia Plath's Ariel, which was the book the poems that she was working on like l- later in, so when she died essentially. So it's, and I think I probably discovered this when I was about 17 and doing my A-levels. So that's like the end of high school over here. I like the pre-college exams. And so being taught this by kind of really feminist English teacher, English literature teacher, and just having like my mind completely expanded and blown by the force of this creativity that was then kind of cut short, you know, the way that she just expended this before she decided that she couldn't live anymore. And I think throughout my life, I've found, I've come back to it because I just adore it. And I've always found different meaning in it. Like, you know, it's it's full of rage and it's full of maternal love. It's full of rage, it's full of sexual jealousy. It's full of a way of seeing the world that I think can only happen in a sort of abyss. And I think, you know, it's kind of a cliche, I guess, but all, you know, feminists, all young feminists, like find their consciousness through Sylvia Plath, but there's something to be said for that. You know, I think she's beloved for really important reasons. So yeah, I would say Sylvia Plath's Ariel. It's kind of like a desert, you know, like what you would take on a desert island. I'd probably take that. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, I also discovered Sylvia Plath when I was a senior in high school at about 17. So I feel like it really is a coming of age 
Mm -hmm. author for, like you said, a lot of young feminists. So um, thank you for sharing everything you've shared with us today. This was such a beautiful conversation and I'm sure everyone listening has really enjoyed it. So if anyone wants to find you, follow you, buy your book, where can they do all of the things? Well, I just want to say thank you too, because I've enjoyed this immensely. It's been such a pleasure and I've just, yeah, I've loved it. Um, So I am at Eleanor Cleghorn on Twitter and Instagram. Please come and say hi. And my book, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World is published by Dutton Books. And it's available through all your usual book online distributors. And if you can support an indie bookshop, that's fantastic so thank you so much thanks for tuning in to another episode of courageous wellness tune in every wednesday for a new episode featuring a different guest each week subscribe rate and write us a nice review and you can also follow us on instagram at courageous wellness or get in touch via our website www.courageouswellness.net where you can also find additional info about our health coaching services virtual group events newsletter and more until next week i'm Allie, and i'm erica and we're courageous wellness